0: Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7. Uh, We're still really technically in the Acts series. We're just digging a little bit more deeply into the life of James, the brother of Jesus. But we do have to range all over the Scripture. And so we're going to start with this passage, John chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers, therefore, said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret, while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. Amen. Father God, we come to your word. It is our desire to have that grace that enables us to tremble at your word, to handle it reverently, I pray that you would enable me uh, to do so, that you would quicken the word to our hearts, that you would be glorified in our responses. In Christ's name we pray, amen. may be seated. Last week, I used Acts 15 as a launching pad to do more exploration in the life of uh, James, We saw that he began with very humble beginnings and yet became uh, one of the most influential people in the church. Some people say even more influential than the Apostle Paul at the early stages of Christianity anyway. Uh, He certainly was the chief of the three pillars in the church of Jerusalem. He even had a lot of favor with unbelievers. Uh, Even Josephus said he was the most righteous of men, called him the pillar uh and uh had other great things to say about him so he had enormous influence inside the church outside the church uh was a very godly man very righteous um, he was a man who had incredible power uh in prayer and so this first point that we're going to be looking at today which is actually continuing from last week Roman numeral 3 is kind of a shocker James did not believe in Jesus until after the resurrection And that has been a real puzzler to some people. In verses 3 through 4, we see the bad attitudes of the brothers toward Jesus. One commentator describes this as a sneer. It was making fun, uh, mocking Jesus. Uh, If you uh, do these things implies that they doubted that he did. Then in verse 5, it says clearly, For even his brothers did not believe in him. Did his sisters believe? Well, perhaps. This one doesn't address that. But James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've got mockery. We have unbelief. There's more. Verse 7, Jesus says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. Now, those three statements taken together indicate that these brothers were not yet regenerate. They were outwardly in the covenant. In fact, Jesus, because they're outwardly in the covenant, He has them to go ahead on up into the festival, uh, to partake of that festival, but they are not yet in the invisible church. And I know that many Auburn Avenue uh, folks, which is another name for Federal Vision folks, don't like that uh, uh, invisible, visible distinction in the church, but you find it all over the place. It's all throughout the Scriptures. And I'll just give you a few examples Paul speaks of the Israel according to the flesh and the Israel of God. Uh, In Luke 3, John speaks of the difference between those who were outwardly the children of Abraham and those who were spiritually children of Abraham. And he uses the figure of chaff and the kernel. The chaff will be burned up with unquenchable uh, fire. And so there's the outward form. Chaff looks like wheat, but there is the inward life. Paul says, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Romans 9, verse 6. He says, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. And so he speaks of outward covenant appearance and inward reality. And there are many, many statements like that throughout the Scriptures. I want you to jot down one that I think is uh, quite powerful. It's 1 John 2 and verse 19. It says about apostates, they went out from us, but they were not of us. So there was some sense in which they were part of us because they went out from us. They were part of us. They were in the church, and yet they were in another sense not of us. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. None of them. Now that is quite contrary to the Auburn Avenue theology. And in fact, I believe it strikes at the heart, at the very root of some of the problems with their views of the covenant. And I think that James and his brothers illustrate this so well. Jesus' brothers were not apostates yet. They were in the church. Uh, they probably had perfectly orthodox uh, theology. And yet, according to the Apostle Paul, they lack saving faith and in some sense are identified with the world. And that's why the world cannot hate them. I contrast that phrase in verse 7, the world cannot hate you, with what Jesus said about true believers. In John 15, verse 19, Jesus said, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now that contrast shows that the brothers were, in one sense, Part of the world, even though they were in the Church of Jesus Christ outwardly, and those of you who are studying Auburn Avenue theology, I think this whole first point deals with some of the aspects that uh, need to be understood when you're reading uh, when you're reading those books. Uh, Doug Wilson, Steve Schlissel, Steve Wilkins, and uh, others are are friends I think they're 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 Christians they've contributed a lot to the Church of Jesus Christ I think they've written some great books on family and on other areas but I think that they have had serious serious deviations from reformed theology and I want to talk about some of those uh deviations I've waited a long time to say anything publicly about this but I think it, it is time to to speak and so when John says John 7 for even his brothers did not believe in him. And Jesus says, the world cannot hate you. It means that they were not regenerate. Now, certainly, they went through all of the outward forms of religion. In John chapter 2, it indicates they even traveled with Jesus, their brother, for a period of time. After a while, they must have dropped out because maybe they were irritated with him. But they traveled with him for a while. But God had not yet placed them into his invisible church. Auburn Avenue people react against the older Reformed desires to draw our children to profession of faith. And they call it revivalism. And I can understand their frustration with some of the extremes of revivalism. There are some extremes they are rightfully afraid of and want to avoid. But water baptism is not enough. John Burick, one of the Auburn Avenue theologians, said, Every baptized person is in covenant with God and is in union with Christ and with the triune God. The Bible doesn't know a distinction between being internally in the covenant, really in the covenant, and being only externally in the covenant, just being in the sphere of the covenant. The Bible speaks of the reality, efficacy of baptism. Every baptized person is in Christ and therefore shares in his new life. And so they say that baptism actually communicates saving grace. In fact, there's a whole new book coming out there called Baptism Saves. Uh, so it communicates saving grace. What the people need to do is just persevere in that saving grace. And uh, I don't think this is the way the Scripture speaks. They say baptism even gives you faith and justification. Lusk, uh, one of their numbers, says, "...we are not to try to convert our baptized children." as though their spiritual experience had to fit the revivalistic paradigm. Rather, we teach them to persevere in the faith and grace that they already received in baptism, unquote. The Auburn Avenue Session issued a joint statement saying, "...by baptism one is joined to Christ's body, united to Him covenantally, and given all, note that word all, the blessings and benefits of His work, unquote." In a recent CD set that I listened to by Doug Wilson, he said much the same fact he even treats Roman Catholics who are baptized and still in the church, if they fall away from Rome, okay, that's different. But if they're still in the church, he treats them as being part of the body of Christ in the new covenant, and we need to be calling them brothers. He says, yeah, there may be heretical brothers there, maybe false brothers, but we still need to call them brothers until such time as they are excommunicated or cut off. And so the question comes up, well, what about people who fall away from the Protestant church or who fall away, in the case of Wilson, from the the Roman Catholic church? They are excommunicated. They're cut off. What happens then? And um, what he would say is they didn't persevere in God's grace, but they still insist that those apostates were previously truly in covenant with God, truly in the one and only church and truly members of the body. But the passage we just quoted contradicts that. It says, "...they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us." In other words, if they don't persevere, it's not that they uh, just lack persevering grace. They didn't have the grace in the first place. They weren't saved in the first place. They weren't part of us in the first place. They weren't in the church. Period. That's what First John uh, is indicating there. And I think James illustrates the historic position very well. It was while James, James was a member in good standing, because he was able to go up to the covenant and take part of the Lord's table, it was while he was a member of the church outwardly that John says, in some part, he was identified with the world, and the world could not hate him. Auburn Avenue people insist that Titus 3, verse 5 teaches otherwise. Uh, Steve Wilkins says, take Titus 3.5. It says, God saves us according to His mercy by means of the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Ghost. The word washing plainly refers to baptism. Paul says that His washing is something that results in regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Well, actually, that is precisely what the text does not say. It says the exact opposite of that. If Wilkins was correct... And if baptism results in regeneration, however you interpret that word, and they do reinterpret it, in fact, a lot of the ways that they can keep their feet in both camps is by reinterpreting definitions, but if water baptism results in regeneration, then the text would read the regeneration of washing. But as Gordon Clark points out, quote, the actual phrase... The washing of regeneration indicates that regeneration washes, not that washing regenerates, unquote. Those are quite different things. In fact, they are opposite things. It's not talking about water baptism at all. Uh, Now, this may seem a little bit esoteric to you, but there are a lot of Reformed people out there that are buying into this theology. And our denomination recently felt that they had to deal with this, and they recognized some of these guys are saying good things. But on a vote of more than 90% at the General Assembly, they said that there were certain features of the Auburn Avenue theology that are non-confessional and that are dangerous, and they've really encouraged us pastors to teach on some of these things. Now, the Auburn theology or the Federal Vision uh, theology people, they're good guys. They've contributed a lot to the a church, and so we shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. And they themselves say, hey, we're just discussing these things. Other people say you're a moving target. It's hard to nail you down. They say, we're discussing these things. It may take 50 years for us to sort out all of this theology. But what's happened in the meantime is these guys will make a statement and they'll write a paper or a booklet, then they'll change their mind, but they've got a whole bunch of followers that are now following this old thing and don't change their mind themselves and they're in real serious error. So what I'm saying is read their stuff with caution. They are good guys. They've had some great stuff to contribute, but read it with caution. Some of the things they're saying are dangerous. Now on the baptism question, it's important to distinguish clearly between water baptism, which is a sign, and spirit baptism, which is what that sign was pointing towards. James was baptized. Uh, Steve Wilkins denies that a person may be baptized with water without also being baptized automatically by the Spirit and regenerated. Of course, with their saying, reinterpreting what regeneration means and what being born again means. But uh, many Jews were water baptized. But Jesus said to one of these Jews, Nicodemus by name, you must be born again. John 3, verse 7. Two verses earlier he said, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. John 3, verse 5. Those are two quite different baptisms. Being born of water was a current Jewish expression that referred to baptism. Anytime a person had proselyte baptism, they were said to be born into Judaism or born of water. And so Nicodemus was born of water and Jesus was saying to them, that's not enough. You can't just be born of water. You have to be born of water and of the Spirit, or you're not going to get into the kingdom of heaven. And um, the immediate objection that the Auburn people will give was well, that that was prior to Pentecost. Of course, after Pentecost is when the baptism of the Spirit and other things like that have, and my response to them would be, well, that is a good point in part, but why then did Jesus specifically say to Nicodemus at that time, you must be born again, you must be born of the Spirit? He was in the covenant. Why didn't he just treat him objectively in the covenant as if he was saved, as if he had all of these things that the Auburn people say a covenant member has? He doesn't treat them that way. And I think it's quite clear in the Scripture, parents and pastors cannot communicate the Spirit. What we can do is we can lay claim to the promises of Scripture, we can pray on their behalf, but only God can regenerate our children and open their eyes. Now, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later on, but I want to change the subject right now. And I want to apply this point to lack, this lack of belief to the parenting of Joseph and Mary, because this is a thing that has troubled uh, people as well. Uh, Because the the parenting of Joseph and Mary seems like it was great parenting. So why are these people, these four brothers, uh, not saved? They immediately assume there must have been something wrong with the parenting that Joseph and Mary gave. Now, Jesus turned out okay, but you would expect that, right? (laughs) You can't help that. But to have four of the seven children who are unbelieving, that really does raise some questions. And then you throw in the bad attitudes that they had. And it really does raise the the tension a, a, a little bit. Now, before you jump to the conclusion that it's the fault of the parents, let me make a couple of observations. From Luke 2, 51 through 52, you would guess that Joseph and Mary were doing a knock-down, splendid job of raising Jesus. Jesus submitted to their authority. He thrived under their authority. And it didn't seem to be only Jesus who was being taught the Scriptures and being taught reading, writing, and arithmetic. You read the books of Jude and James... And it seems quite clear that those two had been well trained by their parents. They knew the scriptures inside and out. Uh, they knew how to read and write. And so there was a communication uh, into their lives. And so why the unbelief? Well, first, I think it is a caution to us to not assume that because our children are baptized, that they are automatically regenerate. I agree that baptism ushers our children into incredible kingdom privileges that those who are not baptized do not have, including, 1 Corinthians 7 indicates, being sanctified, being set apart for the spirits working in their lives to lead them to salvation that 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14 promises. That's incredible. But salvation is not automatic. Paul tells the believers in 1 Corinthians 7 not to divorce their unbelieving spouse. And he gives as his reason why that they are sanctified. Because you're in the covenant, your whole family has been set apart. There's two kinds of sanctification in the Bible. You can have pots and pans and, and you know, the temple. There's all kinds of things that were sanctified. That's an outward sanctification, there's an inward, in which case you're saved. Here, they're sanctified, but they're not saved because in verse 16, Paul says, how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And so the sanctification did not automatically save the unbelieving spouse, right? Now, let's apply that to the the baby because he uses exactly the same word for the baby. The baby is holy, it is sanctified, same Greek word. You would have to apply the same thing. How do you know, O parent, whether you will save your child? I mean, that's the logic that's behind 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, that baby is already baptized because he has another word that's used to him, and it's uh, uh, unclean. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. They're sanctified. And so the baptism itself did not save that child. Okay, what it did is it put it within a sphere of the operations of the spirit, the operations of the kingdom that would be a blessing, but it was not automatic uh, salvation. And so uh, seeking to lead our children to faith is not revivalism. It is plain Jane Christianity. Uh, Secondly, it is a caution for us to not assume that because we have skillfully used XYZ parenting methodologies that our children are automatically going to turn out well. We are totally dependent upon God and need to cry out to God uh, for our children's uh, benefit. A president of my Bible school in Canada back in the uh, early 70s uh, was a good parent and he'd raised, uh, he and his wife had raised uh, several children. And uh, his last son turned out kind of bad. Wandered away from the Lord and did not come back until later in life. He was very much like James was in in, in this uh, situation here. And Ellie Maxwell, the president of that school, said that he would have been tempted to be really proud of his parenting because of how everything went so perfectly with all of the other children, and he might have even been arrogant with others who were going through struggles if it hadn't been for this kid that the Lord had thrown into his into his life. And he came to the realization, we can do everything perfectly right. And yet, if God does not regenerate that heart, if God does not work in that heart, all we're going to have is outward success. Now, let me just give a side note here. Outward success is okay. Some people say, oh, I I don't don't want to have any outward conformity. All I want is the heart. And so they don't use the methods that they should be using in raising and training their children. Let me tell you something. This outward conformity, this outward um, success is a wonderful thing because it protects our children from dangers, from all kinds of miserable setups in their lives. But outward is not enough. What we need is the what the title of a book. Some of you guys have already read, uh, Shepherding a Child's Heart. So we need the methods plus we need... The, the 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 Lord to be reaching uh, their heart, to be blessing uh, our methods. And so it's very important that we not um, uh, think that methodology is sufficient. Parenting is designed to cast us upon His mercy and to trust His grace alone. I mean, what parent has not pulled his or her hair out at times with their kids and said, Lord, what do I do? What do I do? How do I get this kid to see it? You know, I preach and preach, and I just can't get this kid to connect and understand what I'm trying to get across. Well, uh, it's why we have to constantly hold the mirror of God's Word before our children's faces so that they can see the way they really are and then hold God's grace up to their heart so that uh, God can use His Word to transform them. This is why we have to parent on our knees. It is not an automatic thing. Now, I'll make more applications in a moment, but I want you to turn with me to Psalm sixty nine This is a wonderful, wonderful messianic psalm. It's quoted many times in the New Testament as being the very words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I want you to take a look at verse eight. It covers many this psalm covers many details, including uh, the fact that Jesus bore our sins as if they were His own. They were legally. His sins. But take a look at verse um, 8. I have become a stranger. This is Jesus speaking. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Now, we talked about whether Mary had any children last week. Well, here's another verse you can throw in there uh, that she did indeed have children. My mother's children. It wasn't just Joseph's children. It was my mother's children. But notice that he became a stranger to his brothers and an alien to them. In other words, there was an estrangement that had been going on between James and Jesus. And we're not told why uh, completely why there was an estrangement. It may be that these brothers were kind of frustrated that they're the ones who are always getting the spankings and Jesus never got any. And, uh, you know, Jesus, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, what's going on here, you know? And any time mom comes into the room and there's an argument going on, automatically they assume it's James and Joseph's fault. How come they never assume that it's a Jesus' fault? And so we're not, you know, it's all guesswork. We don't know why it was that there was this kind of frustration that was going on. It may be simply because it was very difficult for them to live with a perfect person. Maybe they had taken on some of the offense uh, of the uh, community that was around them. verse 9, of uh, Psalm 69 continues, And it says, because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. So even when he was engaging in spiritual disciplines, they were getting on his case over it. Here he's going out fasting before the Lord. And I can just imagine the brother is saying... Look at Jesus. He's fasting again. Who does he think he is? He's trying to pretend to be more holy than we are. I mean, you can see this kind of offense going on, but there is some way within this family that there was an offense that Jesus was fasting. It became his reproach. Uh, uh, one commentator said, This psalm tells us about the silent years of Christ's childhood and young manhood. We hear the heart sob of a young boy, a teenager, a young man. Verse 11, I also made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gates speak against me, and I am the song of drunkards. Now, we know from the Gospels, there were a lot of Jews out there who thought that Jesus was illegitimate. And you can see why just from the history of uh, what went on in the virgin birth. So we can ask this question, why? Why did Jesus have to go through all of this throughout His whole life? First answer is that Jesus had to be our substitute. He had to have uh, the perfect uh, uh active obedience and the perfect passive obedience in order to be our Savior. Second, so that He could sympathize with us and identify with us in every stage of our lives. Children, think about this. Jesus had a hard-to-get-along-with-brother just like some of you do. And I know some of you are really frustrated, you know, with your brother, your sister, and it's just like life would be really good if we just didn't have so-and-so in our family. Well, Jesus had a rough brother to get along with, and yet he was not overcome by evil, but he overcame evil with good. Jesus did not give up on James. He persevered in praying for James until James came uh, to Christ. And so I would encourage you to do the same. And also realize, Jesus understands exactly what you're going through and you've got a tough sibling to work with. Jesus, cast your cares on me, for I care for you. I know what you're going through. I went through exactly the same thing with James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. Uh, Third, Jesus had to go through all of this so that that He could experience every trial we face from babyhood and on and yet be without sin. I do not think that Jesus' brothers were necessarily the norm for Christianity. Some people would take that conclusion. I don't think that at all. I think the norm is that our children will never know a time from the time of their birth and on when they don't know and love the Lord and trust Him. I think that's the norm. Sometimes uh, things deviate, but I think God had Christ go through this so that any child who is having to deal with an unbelieving sibling has a Savior who's experienced exactly the same uh, the, 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 the same issues. And he says, cast your cares on me. Now, if you're the James who's been given your siblings a tough time, then uh, you can realize that God's grace is sufficient to overcome you. Sometimes these Jameses are frustrated that they have been so tough to get along with. and oh, Lord, how do, I, how do I quit doing this? Well, we saw last week that if James could be taken from that kind of a situation and turned into a wonderful, godly man... He can do that with you. He can turn your life upside down as well. In fact, next week, Lord willing, we're going to be seeing how God takes James's strong will and He aligns it, realigns it by God's grace to be conformed to His law. He comes to love God's law. And it makes him an incredibly powerful leader. And it makes him incredibly a wonderful, powerful martyr. And you know, many times... It's the Jameses of this world who make the best martyrs, and their siblings are cheering them on. Yeah, go, James, go. <laughs> We'd like you to go as a missionary to the headhunter tribe. But uh, <laughs> um, God can use all types of people and personalities. We need to value all types of people and uh, personalities. Now, turn with me to Mark chapter 3. This is one more passage that highlights a rather embarrassing point in James's life, if indeed it does apply to the immediate family. And there are some people who question that whether it does apply to the immediate family of Jesus. Uh, strong arguments, I think, for it. Given their unbelief, I think it is the most is just a logical conclusion for them to think Jesus is crazy. Think of the the three choices that. Um, that C.S. Lewis gave with regard to the Messiah. Given the outrageous claims that Jesus gives, either he is the Messiah, he is who he says he is, or he is a crook, he is just a fraud who is deliberately deceiving the people, or he is crazy. Those are the only alternatives that you can have. Now, these brothers do not believe he is the Messiah. They don't believe he is a crook So, it's perfectly logical for them to assume he's crazy. In fact, they may be thinking that they're trying to arrest him, grab hold of him for his own good. They're going to try to get him out of the public eye because this is really embarrassing what Jesus is doing. Look at verse 21, Mark 3, verse 21. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Now, the word people is not in the Greek. It's literally when those who were beside him heard about this, but it's an idiom, it's an expression that refers most of the time to those who are part of your family, uh, your your immediate family. It can be broader relatives, Uh, it can also be for very close friends, but um, one translation renders it, they that belonged unto him. Uh, William Lane points out that from the usage of the expression... Uh, this idiom, and from the fact that in verse 31, his brothers are present, they're right there, that we really should translate this as his family. And so eight of the translations that I own translate this as his family, two more translate it as his relatives, other translations are his kinfolk and his relations. So there are 12 translations that I have that all see this as some way being the family of Jesus. Now, William Lane in his commentary says, Mary's faith was insufficient to resist the determination of her sons to restrain Jesus and bring him home, Unquote. So if this is indeed a reference to the immediate family of, of Jesus, and I am absolutely convinced that it is, then what's going on in this chapter, his brothers think Jesus has gone over the top. He is, He's crazy. Uh, we've got to restrain and we've got to do something about him for the sake of the family reputation, you know, for his own sake. We've got to do something uh, about Jesus. And this must have been <laughs> such an embarrassing thing for James to look back on. I think there may have been times later on in life he just shudders to think what he had tried to do uh, to Jesus in, uh, in this verse here. And so it's no wonder to me that Jesus entrusts his mother not to his brothers, but he entrusts his mother in John chapter 19 to his best friend John. That, that's, that's kind of a, a bold statement against these brothers that they were definitely in unbelief and Jesus knew, knew it. Now let's make some applications from these three points that we have looked at. First, the mere possession of covenant privileges does not save a person. Uh, James had incredible covenant privileges. Incredible. He was circumcised and baptized on the eighth day. He was brought up in a loving home, constantly heard the wa- word of God being taught, spent a lifetime with the God-man Jesus, but there is still a difference between the outward and the inward. Some circles put far too much trust on the outward covenant relationship, what they call the objective covenant Uh, relationship with Jesus. In fact, I was recently reading some Auburn Avenue uh, literature which called the traditional view of regeneration a form of Gnosticism. Now, that is an irresponsible, an absolutely irresponsible charge. Now, thankfully, Doug Wilson disagreed with that categorization, and he's trying to be a bridge builder. He's one of the best, I think, of the whole Auburn Avenue guys and uh, he, he said, no, that that is definitely not uh, Gnosticism. But these guys are so reactionary in their attempts to avoid revivalism and the damage that it's done to some people. And there are some things to avoid in revivalism that they uh, are labeling far too much as being revivalistic and Gnostic. They uh, rail against our desires to see our children make a profession of faith. And so their goal is... Is to never have our child deny that it was given faith and grace in baptism, but to persevere in that faith and in in that grace. Uh, Wilkins says, Paul said, You all are baptized into Christ and members of Christ's body, each of you. No qualifications. He doesn't say, If you sincerely repent of your sins and sincerely believe in Christ, then you're a member of the body. But that's exactly what Paul says. In the same letters to the to the to the Corinthians, same group that Wilkins is quoting from, Second Corinthians thirteen five, he says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. He's talking to church members. That is not Gnosticism. It is not revivalism. It is a legitimate concern for the internal and eternal salvation of their souls. You don't assume anything. Let me tell you something. I never assume the salvation of my children. I know that God has made His promise. We lay claim to that promise. We act upon that promise. But we don't just assume. We're constantly pressing the hearts of our children to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Auburn Avenue people uh, have said over and over again that water baptism saves them in some sense. And I say no. No. Spirit baptism saves them, not water baptism. And there are many examples where water baptism and spirit baptism are separated. Separated by time, by a long time. Water baptism is the promise the parents lay claim to for spirit baptism. Now, is water baptism a privilege? I say, absolutely. It's incredible privilege. A wonderful privilege. It draws our children out, outwardly into the covenant, into the ministry of the Word, into effective nurture, uh, and training, water baptism is the promise of, of the Father that I will be a God to you and to your children after you. And I lay claim to that promise. I bless God for that promise. But if that promise is going to be fulfilled, the Scripture says we must still lead our children to faith. Lead them to Christ. Uh, here is how Isaiah 44 words it. And Isaiah 44, 1 through 5, I think is just a, a beautiful picture of God's covenant relationship to our our children. By the way, it is a prophecy of the new covenant, the age that we're living in. And it begins in the womb. That's where God claims our children, right from the time of conception. They're conceived for God. They're born for God. They're His uh, children. He claims them. And so there's a claim that God puts upon them, Then it talks about water baptism. Then it talks about spirit baptism and them making profession of faith. Now, it uses Old Covenant language for that profession, but it's beautiful, beautiful language. It says, they will spring up among the grass like willows by the water courses. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. What they were doing is they were signing a public profession of faith. They were raising their hands and saying, Yes, I am the Lord's. I want the Lord to be my Savior, my Lord and Master. I am a Jacobite. I am a son of Abraham. I am a Christian. Now, some people assume that the Abrahamic covenant it was uh, unconditional. I will be a God to you and to your children after you, period. I'm not going to take... I just scratched out this morning. I'm not going to take the time to read it, but you can just jot down Genesis 18... 17 through 19, and you will see it is not an unconditional covenant. God made all kinds of promises to Abraham and to his seed, but before he would fulfill those promises, he says Abraham needs to raise these uh, children in the nurture of the Lord. He needs to be drawing them to the Lord. It is not automatic. It is uh, something that, that does have a condition. Now, one objection that Auburn people bring up Is that John 15 verse 2 says that branches that later apostatize are truly in Christ and have His grace and have His sap flowing through them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be branches. Frankly, this is their strongest verse. Uh, and it's, I think it's a great verse that they can, uh, they can bring up and you may not even be convinced with the explanation I'll give on it. This is their strongest verse for their view of the covenant. John 15 2 says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. They say the branch is really in Jesus. Jesus says so. Every branch in me. And yet, later on, it says that that branch ends up in hell. It's cast into the fire. And so they say there is a genuine union with Christ and his grace simply by virtue of being grafted into Jesus by baptism. Now, my response to that is, um, yeah, they may be right about the baptism, but it didn't mention anything about baptism or SAP or internal union. Uh, but let me just say that there is more than one way to be in Christ. In fact, if you go through Ephesians chapter 1, you will find seven different ways of union with Christ. And there's eight altogether. But let me just go through a couple so you can get a, a feel for that. First of all, teleologically, we were in Christ long before the world existed, long before we existed. We were in the, in, united in Christ, in God's plan, in His predestination. That's not an experienced union, but it's a real union, right? So we're going to make some distinctions here. Second, Ephesians 1 also talks about representational union that we have with our substitute on the cross. It's kind of a legal thing. He took our sins. He became our substitute. He's treated as Phil Kaiser. He was punished as Phil Kaiser. And so there is that kind of a union, but we've not, we didn't experience that. We were died, buried, and raised with Him long before we existed. Third, there is a positional union that we have with Him as believers when it says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Now, that gives us an authority in prayer we would not otherwise have when we lay claim to that legal union we have with Jesus. Fourth, Ephesians 1 also speaks of an experiential union that we have beginning at the time of our conversion. Now, I am quite willing to admit that they are probably correct that in baptism there is a covenantal union that we have with Christ's body, the church. And if it's with Christ's body, the church, then it can be said to be with Christ. Okay, so we're in Christ by baptism in that sense. And it is a covenantal, it's an outward union. They would deny that. But um, that outward union does bring huge benefits. And those benefits are talked about in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews chapter 10. Also passages Auburn Avenue people talk about. But Hebrews denies that everyone or anyone of those people who have those benefits Uh, and and falls away, we're ever saved in the first place. Let me give you an example. Hebrews 6, verse 9. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Better than what? Well, he's just finished saying uh, that they had um, tasted of the heavenly gift, uh, that they were illuminated, that they had experienced miracles, you know, the powers of the age to come. And so those were blessings in their lives. But he said... We Beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. So those things did not accompany salvation. He's not saying they were saved and they lost it. Uh, They did not accompany salvation in the first place. But because the Auburn Avenue folk absolutely reject the historic interpretation that says there is a difference between outward covenantal union and inward spiritual union, They claim that all baptized people are given all the benefits of a Christian and they simply need to persevere in those benefits. And this is so clear in their writing. They don't need to call for faith. If they don't persevere and they are later on cut off, they claim that such a branch was once justified but is now condemned. That means you can lose your justification. They claim that they were once elect but they're now reprobate. So you can lose, you can fall away from your election. They claim they were once sanctified, and they say real sanctification, but now they're living totally under the dominion of sin. They were once a child of God. They are now a child of Satan. It, 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 to me, it's just incredible that they can go this far in, in, in buying in, into all of that. And I just do not accept that. This completely turns every Reformed definition of soteriology upside down. Now, I know they give all kinds of caveats and reinterpretations, but I see no exegetical basis for their caveats. They say that they still believe the Westminster Confession of Faith, but I have yet to see their exegetical uh, defense of the confession. They're defending exegetically uh, all of their views over here, but let me just give you an example. Norman Shepherd, who was one of the fathers of the previous to Auburn, but one of their heroes, he says, and all of these guys would agree with him, is that the Scripture does not give us the secret things of God. And I say, okay, granted. Election, that is eternal election, that's part of the secret things of God. We don't know who that is. But covenantal election, and now I'm not beginning to follow, but they say covenantal election different than the eternal election. We believe in eternal election. Westminster Confession says that. But the covenantal election is something that you can lose if you apostatize. And the only thing that we can follow is the objective covenant. We have to treat people just the way the Scripture treats them. And here's the problem that I have with that. If all of Scripture is only God's covenantal, objective covenantal revelation to us, where in the Bible can you find any definition of election? The kind of election that Westminster Confession talks about, not the kind they're talking about. They're wanting to have their feet in both camps and I don't think they're going to be successful in doing that. I don't think they're going to be successful because uh, the, the very basis for their covenant language does not allow them to exegetically defend why they believe that there is a, uh, a, an election of God that cuts down through the covenant. And besides that, they... Miss the context of John 15. The point is, in verses 4 through 5, that all branches that abide in Jesus bear fruit. Now, if abiding simply means a, a span of time, you know, that you have to be in Christ uh, more than just a few minutes, you have to be in there years, it still doesn't answer people who have all their lives been in there and then they're broken off of the, uh, of the branch. Abiding is a different kind of being united with Jesus than the branch that does not bear. In fact, Rodney just earlier gave a great exposition from Matthew chapter 7. Was it 7? I think it was 7. Um, <laughs> uh, that talked about uh, every good tree bears good fruit. Everyone. No exceptions. And so there, the bad trees are cut down. Here, the bad branches cut down. But it's the fruitfulness that Jesus is interested in. If you're not fruitful, you were never truly uh, saved in the first place is the whole point. And this is why in Matthew 7, Jesus says, by their fruits, you will know them. This is so certain that they will always bear fruit. You can tell the fake from the counterfeit. I mean, the counterfeit from the real by their fruitfulness, right? And so let me go ahead and, uh, well, I'm, I guess I'm skipping ahead, um, Yeah, I am definitely skipping ahead. Uh, In order to maintain this view that baptized children inherit all the privileges of the covenant, including regeneration and justification, they also deny the traditional view of regeneration and justification. And it's a logical necessity. Now, Doug Wilson's trying hard, as I said, to keep his feet in both worlds, but he too is somewhat distorted on both of those doctrines, but... He at least agrees there is such a thing as internal regeneration, and I'm thankful for that. But let me give you some sample Auburn Avenue quotes from others on this subject that Doug Wilson considers friends, and he has them writing for him, and they're all part of the same group. James Jordan says, the Bible does not teach that some people receive incorruptible new hearts. That is, that some people are, as individuals, regenerated. So, it's an outright denial of the historic doctrine of regeneration. And My response is, what about 1 Peter 1.23? It says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. And I, w- I would encourage you to read John Owen's book on the Holy Spirit. There's two chapters on regeneration. They're fabulous. Tons of scripture. I won't have time to go into them, but he's got a ton. Anyway, James Jordan goes on in his paper. He says, my thesis is... There is no such thing as regeneration in the sense in which Reformed theology since Dort has spoken of it. The Bible says nothing about a permanent change in the hearts of those elected to heaven. My position? Everyone who is baptized has been given the same thing. Everyone. Okay. No one has been given a permanently changed, regenerated heart. Then why does the Bible speak of a heart transplant? Taking out the stony heart, replacing it with another heart. Why does it speak of you know, a resurrection of our spirits? And though not all of them go to quite the same extent as uh, Jordan does, who uh, speaks of this in terms of our partaking in a cosmic uh, regeneration, they still are all trying to avoid the inward, the subjective, because of their uh, hyper-avoidance of revivalism and uh, their, their attempts to... Uh, avoid that is say forget the heart let's deal with people objectively the objectivity of the covenant that's their mantra that's what they say over and over again but james the brother of jesus is a classic case of a person who fits our definition the historic definition that a person can be objectively in the covenant and i have no problem with that that's the outward covenant and yet still need a subjective personal conversion he had to be converted Call it revivalism, call it whatever you want to call it, James still needed it. He doesn't need to be told to persevere in a grace that he already has. James needed to be told to repent and convert. He was still the seed of the serpent, even though he was outwardly in the covenant. And they say that does not make any sense. You are either in the covenant or you are not in the covenant. There can't be any other alternative. Well, given their definition of the covenant... I can see where there's only those logical alternatives, but that's not the way the Bible uses the term covenant. And let me give you an example with the covenant of Abraham. God explicitly told Abraham that Ishmael is not in the covenant. I will not make my covenant with Ishmael. Yet what does he tell Abraham to do to Ishmael? It tells him, to circumcise him. Well, what is circumcision? It was the sign of the covenant. So in one sense, Ishmael is put into the covenant, he's circumcised, he's a member of the Abrahamic covenant. In another sense, God says, no, you're not, my covenant's not going to be with you. What, what is going on there? Uh, the traditional view is not strange, it's being sensitive to the nuances of Scripture. And so there is some sense in which the covenant is external, some sense in which it is Internal. And it's important to see that election cuts down through the covenant. In fact, when interpreting the Abrahamic covenant, Galatians chapter 4 makes clear that even though Ishmael and Isaac lived historically under the Abrahamic covenant, they were brothers after all, that they were representatives of two, the two and the only two separate covenants. Ishmael was part of the old broken covenant. Isaac was part of the Christ fulfilled covenant, the new covenant, long before the new covenant was even ratified. Ishmael was part of it. I mean, not Ishmael. Isaac was part of the new covenant. Ishmael was part of the old covenant. And so contrary to what uh, Auburn Avenue Uh, theology says branches that are finally broken off are proving themselves to have never been one of us in the first place. The whole context of John 15 uh, makes that clear. Four times, Jesus says that those who abide in Him will always bear fruit. Verses 5, 7, 8, and 16. In fact, so clear is this, this is the verse I was wanting to jump ahead to, that Matthew 7, Jesus says, by their fruits you will know them. And the very next verse goes on to say... Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Next verse. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And Auburn people just jump all over that and they say, see, these people who are going to hell had, when they were living, real grace in their lives. They produced miracles. They had all kinds of things going on. I say, I agree. I, I, I don't disagree at all that Judas performed miracles. God's grace flows much broader than election. I believe in common grace. Common grace is God's grace, His restraining grace, flowing to every man, woman, and child upon the whole face of the earth for the the sake of the elect. I also believe in covenantal grace. Uh, Covenantal grace provides amazing benefits, but what Auburn people fail to emphasize is Christ's words to those people in the very next verse. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He doesn't say, I knew you once. I don't know you anymore. Now, that's what you would expect to say if Auburn theology was true. Uh, You would expect him to say to these covenant members, you once were genuinely united to me. I knew you. I loved you. But now I don't. I knew you once, but you've blown it, so you're out. He does not say that. He says, I never knew you. He never had a relationship with that. They were never His in the first place. And this is why Jesus says in John 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. They will never be broken off. Never. Okay, that's so contrary to Auburn theology. Uh, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Jesus is not talking about the secret things to the Father. He's talking covenant theology to His own disciples. Okay, you can't make those. Kinds. Only the historic interpretation of the difference between the outward and the inward, the visible and the invisible, Israel of the flesh versus a spiritual Israel, can explain these things. Paul says he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Now, the Auburn Avenue says exactly the opposite. Uh, the Auburn Avenue theology says he is a Christian who is one outwardly. It's exactly, it's exactly what they say. They are monocovenantal, which forces them to be mono-ecclesiastical. That's too big a word. Mono-covenantal means there's only one covenant. mono means there is only one church. Visible and invisible are the same. Okay. At the end, there will be some pu- pulled off of it. But they are monocovenantal, which forces them to be mono-ecclesiastical. But Galatians denies... Monocovenantalism, which, because it divides all of history, all of the historical covenants, and there's many historical covenants, divides all of them up into THE two covenants. Look it up sometime. Galatians chapter 4, Paul speaks of THE two covenants. The Old Covenant, the New Covenant. Every historical covenant, you can either be in the Old or you can be in the New. But there's only two. <clears throat> And so it's confusion on this issue that has led Doug Wilson to accept not only Roman Catholic baptism, which by the way, many people who would agree with me on this would say, yeah, we can accept Roman Catholic baptism. I don't, but... They, that's a legitimate disagreement, but he also accepts such baptized Romanists as brothers who were in the new covenant, who have not yet been broken off the vine, who have not yet been cut off of the olive tree. It's just astonishing to me that he would do this. Now, he admits that they're heretical brothers, but they must be treated as brothers nonetheless. I cannot accept that. The Westminster Confession of Faith does not treat them as brothers; it treats them as excommunicated. And when you're excommunicated, you do not call them brothers, you call them heathen and publicans. It calls them, in the Westminster Confession, it calls Rome the synagogue of Satan, not a church of Christ. It calls it Antichrist, not the body of Christ. And I think the confession is right, and Doug Wilson is wrong, great man as he is, and much as I respect him, I I don't, I don't want you to throw out the baby with the bathwater, there is a lot of good that he has done. And though these guys are still within the faith, I fear that their children will not be in the faith, that they will abandon the faith. In fact, I'm already seeing it. There's a number of people who have bought into this theology, who have become Roman Catholics, who have become Greek Orthodox uh, people. This is where things are heading. And I think it's a logical move, but it is not the biblical one. Now, of course, we should not go to the opposite extreme and say that there are no benefits to baptism. That's what some people have done. But I think James could look back on his life and say, you know, even though I was not a believer back then, the fact that I was in the covenant was an incredible blessing. Uh, I had protection. I had an environment of godly teaching. I had things that Jesus put into my life that later He would use to turn my world upside down and to change me. Paul in Romans 3 had to deal with exactly that logic when he was uh, talking about the fact that circumcision did not save There were people who reacted against that. Uh, They they were people who held basically to Auburn uh, thinking that circumcision ushers you into all of the privileges of the covenant, all that they're talking about. Paul says, no way. And they say, well, what's the point of circumcision? Here's what Paul says. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Paul was saying there are enormous blessings to being engrafted outwardly into the covenant. But all of them are outward. Circumcision was designed to put Jews under the preaching of the Word. It was designed to be a promise that parents could lay hold of by faith. It was designed to be a sign that would point the children themselves to say, yes, I want to believe in the Jesus that was pictured by this. When children are ushered into the church by circumcision, they had protection, nurture, instruction of the Word. Malachi says they were sanctified, or holy, some translate. It's exactly parallel to the logic in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14, a passage that indicates that cleansing was designed to eventually lead them to faith. Outward cleansing. And it's my contention that baptism works just like circumcision did. Now, I know that you probably have wished that I had spent a lot less time on this, especially those of you who know nothing about Auburn Avenue theology or Federal Vision theology. You think, why do we have to go on this? I believe what you're saying. Why do we have to keep uh, hammering it? But I really did feel, especially given our denomination's admonition to preach on this, that I need to bring it up. This is a perfect place because I think that James and his brothers illustrate the opposite so well. And I can recommend some great books to you that I think even-handedly treat uh, the material and will help uh, you to sort through it. But it really does logically hang together. And if you have a wrong view on the covenant, it will affect your view of regeneration, justification, evangelism, baptism, church discipline, so many other things. So don't buy the idea because they've written so many great things or such godly people that you, you know, you have to buy everything that they say. That is just not, it is not the the, the case. <clears throat> um, There is no sign so far, and it's my prayer that they will eventually repent, but there's no sign so far that uh, they're going to go back to the traditional theology. Now, let me quickly make three other short applications on this point here. First, if you have unbelieving relatives, realize that Jesus understands what you are saying, and you can lift those unbelieving relatives up to the Lord. The promise of God to be a God to you and to your children is not empty. And whether God brings that promise to pass when they're babies or young children, as is usually the case, or whether He does it where they're much older, as in the case of James, keep holding on to that promise. Keep praying it to the Lord. You're praying according to His will. You're not praying according to the secret will. You're praying according to the will that He's revealed uh, in the Scripture. And uh, God can overcome the resistance in His perfect timing. Another application is that grace is thicker than blood or than covenant relations. I'll just quickly read Matthew 12, 46 through 50. And actually, I won't. I'm just going to skip over that point. Last application from point three that I want to make is that in apologetics, evidence is not enough. Uh, Christ's brothers probably had the opportunity to see more evidence that Jesus was who he said he was than any other person on the face of the map other than their mother. And yet, they still did not believe. In Luke 16, 31, Jesus said, "...if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead." And so it's grace, not overwhelming evidence, that is going to convert a person. By the way, that's something Auburn people would agree with too. Uh, But it's grace, not overwhelming evidence that converts people. Now, the Bible presents evidence, and we're supposed to present evidence, and God many times uses the evidence, but our trust should not be in rationality. Our trust needs to be in God's transforming power. Now, let's move on to the conversion of James, and we're not going to spend much time on this because we only have one hint as to how it happened. We know in John 7, James did not believe. We know in John 19, 25 through 27, Jesus does not give the protection of His mother to to James, which would have been such an insult in the Jewish culture. So from my perspective, that clearly indicates at the cross he did not believe, but 43 days later in Acts 1.14, he and all of his other brothers are clearly believers. So sometime in between there, that's happened. 1 Corinthians 15.7 gives us the hint as to how it happened, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of Christ. But by the grace of God I am what I am. Two things to notice. The also in verse 8 implies Jesus appeared to James the same way he appeared to Paul. F.F. Bruce says that this appearance evidently produced in James a revolutionary effect comparable to that which a similar experience later produced in Paul himself. And so seeing Jesus with his own eyes talking with him turned his world upside down. It, it, It made him a new man and it seems to be a rather sudden conversion where all of a sudden everything made sense. Second, we have a little bit of a chronology here. Based on the appearances that Paul gives and that the Gospels give, it's likely that James is converted within a 19-day period prior to Acts 14. Somewhere in those 19 days. And in your outline, the backside of your outline is a proposed chronology. James is the only brother visited, and so the assumption is that James himself led the other brothers to believe in Jesus. Acts 1.14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Uh, No indication any of the brothers are left out. And so uh, it seems to indicate nobody in Jesus' family was lost. And so God's promise to be a God to us and to our children was indeed fulfilled in his family. Now, we might prefer conversions happen when they're younger, which is, I think, ordinarily the case. But we can still lay claim to that promise. Wonderful promise. And I'm going to end part two of this sermon series on James with this last application. It is grace, not connections, which gets us into heaven. You could not have been better connected than James was could not have been better connected, and yet he was a member of the church on the path to destruction. It is grace, not the covenant, which gets us into heaven. The covenant is the context within which grace works, and so the covenant is very, very important, and 1 Corinthians 7 illustrates that. It indicates the moment one parent believes, God's covenant grabs the whole family, sanctifies them, sets them apart for the Spirit's working, but it also indicates the covenant does not save And if you are a covenant child who's grown up and you have never made your own personal decision saying, I believe in Jesus, I trust, I repent of my sins, I am trusting him alone for my salvation, I would urge you to do that immediately. Even now, you don't even have to wait till after the service. Just make that statement to the Lord. Repent of trusting your outward blessings and look to the Lord Jesus Christ who alone is the hope. And once you've believed in Him, then the rest of your life is a belief because we then, from that point on, have to look to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You that Your salvation is something we cannot fall from, that no one can pluck us out of Your hand, that when Jesus has begun a good work, He will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And Father, it is our desire to be truly in the covenant and not simply outwardly there. And I pray that in Your grace, You would cause uh, Your grace to take every one of our children and enable us as parents to lead them to faith. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.